0: Good afternoon, Larry. Um, My name is Jacqueline Bogus, and I'm one of the five members of the City of Madison's Police and Fire Commission. We are all residents of the Madison community. Under state law, the PFC has the sole authority to appoint the city's next chief of police. The PFC has spent the past year carefully working on this process, including collecting and reviewing a substantial amount of input from numerous groups, individuals, and other stakeholders. The PFC is grateful for all of this input, which has contributed to all stages of the process. The six questions that we'll be asking of each candidate today are derived from that input. With that context, I'd like to start with the first question. Sound good? Sounds like a plan to me. Thanks a lot. Okay, first question. Please take a few minutes to introduce yourself to the residents of Madison and tell us why you want to be,
1: tell us and them why you want to be their chief of police. So my name is Larry Scarado, uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I spent 25 years in law enforcement, 23 of them with the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police. Uh, where I rose to the position of assistant chief of professional standards, which was one of the three branches of the bureau. Uh, In that time, uh, my role with with the organization as the OPS chief was to be the director and oversight of training and education, uh, policy and development, internal investigations, labor management, and the overall uh, vision and strategy for the national initiative To uh, promote safe communities and build trust. And then uh, prior to that, I was the commander of major crimes where I had oversight of homicide and violent crimes and where I. Uh, established the group violence intervention strategy, moving that forward to make a marked reduction in violent crimes, establishing an a investigative branch that focused on, on gun violence, where we were able to decrease uh, homicides in a five-year period by 47%. Prior to that, I was a commander in a patrol patrol district, Zone 3, which was the my first command position, which was our... Uh, Entertainment district, a unique entertainment district, and we were able to uh, engage in community approaches that reduce crime in that neighborhood as well, while also collaborating in a meaningful way with with our community and have and them having valuable input in our policing strategies and initiatives. Uh, I've been a cop pretty much my whole adult life. I, I love this profession, and and. This is a time where I believe that there is a void in leadership in law enforcement. I think I bring a perspective of, of challenging the status quo, uh, where I'm authentic in, in my perspective of where I believe the profession should go. Uh, as far as Madison, know Madison to be a progressive organization, uh, one of the very best in the country and my, my role and responsibility, if given the opportunity to lead an organization will make it be the greatest in the country. Uh, when we talk about policing in the 21st century, uh, I feel that I have an obligation and a skill set to to bring those six tenants of twenty first century policing and our communities and engage in real collaborative community police partnership.
0: Thank you very much. Yes. Okay. So, okay. Question number number two. two. Do you do you believe local police have a role in enforcing federal immigration laws? Please
1: explain. So I co-authored our our, our non our biased policing uh, policy, and that is relative to a short answer to your question. No, uh, we have a responsibility to enforce local ordinances and laws that are prescribed to us by the state, uh, and, and that's where our police power is derived. Uh, and And when we start to to expand our authority into other jurisdictions, I think we expose ourselves to the unjust policing outcomes, unjust community outcomes. The reality of it is is that there's an entity that serves the federal government, and and they're best suited to enforce those laws. Uh, As far as police are concerned, uh, it oftentimes gets into profiling and, and, and targeting specific communities, specifically communities of color when when you start talking about enforcement of immigration laws when the only only violation is is a civil ordinance that's not enforceable criminally.
0: Great. You Peterson, the
1: community. Oh. I didn't I didn't hear anything. You're muted like do you, you hear me now? Yes. Yes? Yes. Okay, great.
0: It seems that police fear some of the communities that they work in and the community, the communities fear the police in return. What fears have you observed in the communities you've policed in and what strategies might you deploy to help heal the harms
1: that cause these fears? So the fears that, that I see... Are, are relative to trust. And, and it's not the type of trust where you talk about, well, somebody taking something that I own. It's, it's relative to trust that do the communities believe that our police are are there to keep them safe? Do they trust that their motives are pure as it relates to public safety? Does it trust that that they will do what is in the best interest of our communities, and, and that commun- that trust is is has a legitimate breakdown in communities of color, and and it is because of historical disparate policing practices that that target communities of color and and members from those communities not having a, a opportunity or a legitimate seat at the table to to collaborate in in a meaningful strategy or a meaningful policing initiatives. And and so from a strategy perspective, from day one, I mean, if you think about the go back to 1829 and you think about Sir Robert Peel's uh, principles for policing, that's 200 years ago, almost 200 years ago, and we still don't get it right. But the one, one of the principles, one of the nine principles is number seven, that the people are the police and the police are the people. And and the first strategy that you must must make a priority for your administration is to engage your communities bring to ensure that we're removing all silos within our organization, that we are becoming an, an open and engaging police organization that brings all perspectives to the table for meaningful input when we're developing police policy, education, or and any strategy or initiative that is going to be deployed in those communities. So so if our communities don't have a say in how they are policed it will most likely result in the distrust that they have for our officers motives. And we have an obligation to engage our communities in a collaborative manner, in a manner that is meaningful and it's not out of convenience in times of crisis that we're doing all of the engagement on the front end, that we're making these meaningful connections and relationships in the beginning so that when times of crisis do occur, that we have built a level of trust that that our motives are pure because we have shown it in our actions, in our words, we have shown it in our engagement and inclusion. And if we are capable of doing that, then if we're capable of making meaningful relationships and building true community police partnerships, then we will improve the the one fear that I think is is ever present in law enforcement and community, and that's that trust. And again, it's about trusting the motives to keep those communities safe.
0: Great. Thank you very much that. So question number four. Do you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. I just want to make sure. Question number four. What is your personal perspective on police engagement with youth? How can we ensure an environment in which youth are able to learn and thrive free from fear?
1: So I believe that everything we do is relational. Uh, that, that no matter which, in any portion of our lives, and, and professionally, personally, it's all about building relationships. Uh, and, and how do you do that? Well, you start with genuine connections early and often, and, and I'll say it over and over again, outside of times of crisis. So our youth, you know, there, there, there's a proverb, an African proverb talks about it takes a village to raise a child we are we are the village, they are our children, maybe our most important asset and and we don't get opportunities to fail them and and when we do, the consequences are dire so as a from personally the engagement that we make with our children, with our youth uh, our our teenagers, our kids and, and those police youth interactions are, are impactful for for not in the immediate future but for generational for generational impact because there are relationships that will last generations in Pittsburgh what i started was with with a did the, the dignity and respect campaign was a youth police olympics and what that was it it was our youngest officers, those officers that would most oftentimes be responding in times of crisis after hours, that weren't community specialists, that these were the everyday officers that answer nine one one calls, and our youth from each of our sixteen or each of our sixteen neighborhoods uh, representative of of all colors all creed all ethnicities, religion, we were certain to be as inclusive as we could be when we developed these teams. And we created a Youth Olympics that is annual. And and what that did is we created an environment where our officers were team building with our youth in times of crisis, developing relationships that were, that would and should last into the future, as they all became adults in, in their own respective ways, of our officers became veterans and of our youth and our kids became young adults, that these these relationships would continue to grow, that there was opportunity to be a mentor to, to those children in, in that environment, and, and that we created a safe space where, where they learned from each other, things about each other that they didn't know prior. Uh, we also created a, a portion of our academy where each recruit is required to go out into the community before graduation and engage in youth engagement. Uh, we take our, our, our youngest officers again with the same premise that introducing our officers in their youthful stage to our kids in our communities in their youthful stage will build natural bonds outside of times of crisis. And, and by doing that, we have, I, I believe we have, we've created meaningful, sustainable relationships that will serve to to build a level of understanding and trust with our officers and our youth. And, and the, the youth have a position at the table. Why wouldn't we engage our young people in, in meaningful policing strategies that most oftentimes affect them? We, we, we forget as, as if they, they don't, like they're highly functional, highly educated, and oftentimes they're more aware than some of the adults that I've encountered. Right. And, and it's important to inform to, me to them have a seat in my police administration because they have a voice. And, and, and that voice oftentimes by way of social media and, and other modern messaging platforms can be louder than than any single adult that I've ever met. So so I think youth engagement is important, but it's most important outside of times of crisis. These are, again, relationships that must be built in advance. They must be cultivated in advance. If we're going to, to rely on them in times of crises, we have to build them in, in times of calm.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, we have two more questions. Um, and number five is, what do you see as the role of police in responding to mental health or drug-related crises? How do you ensure safety and inclusion for people with disabilities and people actively struggling with mental illness and or addiction?
1: So, so the role of police in in mental health crises, I think has, has been um, unfair to both sides. We are sending police to events or, or, Calls or incidents that they are ill prepared to handle; uh, they are not trained in that specific expertise of mental illness. And, and why I say it's unfair is that that when the the loved one or caregiver of the person in crisis calls, they are expecting a an, a qualified responder, right? And, and, and in most instances, neither party is is receiving or the 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 outcomes that they so desire. So Madison has a nationally renowned mental health unit within the police department. And with that should be an added co-responder program that is staffed with mental health professionals and social service professionals A co-responder under program, if you will, that we're ensuring that when our officers are responding to, to mental illness calls, that we're not meeting a crisis with a weapon. We're not meeting a crisis with force. That that we are we are meeting crises with the appropriate trained personnel, and to adequately give help in that moment. So, how do you how do you ensure the safety? Of those of, the, of those in crises, is that you, in addition to this nationally renowned mental health unit that Madison PD has, that you take it a step further, that you improve it by educating and training your officers, all of the officers in Pittsburgh. All of our officers are trained in crisis intervention training. The newest officers, with which is about the last five hundred, have a forty-hour education piece and specifically devoted to crisis intervention. And, and they wear a pin on their lapel that, that's, that's for, for the significance that they're proud to be a first responder. But they also know that there are others in the mental health profession that are much more equipped, much more educated and trained to deal with those, those issues of crises. So they have an ability to summons Those mental health providers in those times of crisis and and to ensure that the the mental health patients or mental health citizens are, are represented at the table, you include them in your command team strategy, especially when you're developing policy and training as it relates to that specific community. It's about inclusion. I talk about, we talk a lot of times about community, communities of color. I talk about communities of other. So oftentimes, and that is the mental health community, oftentimes it's the LGBTQ community. And, and, and those two communities often aren't represented in any type of strategic planning or, or any type of education and policing initiatives and in my administration it's important that they will be included from the onset did i leave anything there might have been a third part of that, that i didn't answer
0: no you, the, okay. you i think you answered the, the full question uh i just said mental health and or
1: addiction i don't know if you want to addiction. add anything. Oh no no, there was no there was that was one where I, maybe i left out addiction so you their Madison also has the Madison Area Addiction Recovery Initiative, and that's that's a funded grant that that speaks to addiction not being a crime, addiction being an illness, and you can classify it in whatever illness you so so choose to put it in. But it's an illness, and that that we shouldn't be treating illness as a criminal event, and that we have an opportunity to to. Direct those involved in this abuse this illness, the substance abuse illness to the appropriate level of services that, that seek to get them help and, and not continue to punish them for this illness and, and and I believe in that strategy. I support the madison the Madison initiative one hundred percent because. As someone who has, has had a loved one affected by substance abuse addiction, my stepfather was, was addicted to heroin. My stepfather recovered from that addiction by the resources provided in, in, from our community systems. And, and, and to understand that, that, that every person that has an addiction is someone's loved one. It's some, is, is, is somebody's son, somebody's daughter, father, mother, and, and that this illness touches many of us, many of us, and, and and it ravages our community, and we have an obligation to provide them help. And, and I think the the addiction recovery or the addiction initiative does just that, and and I continue to support doing just that for our community.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, final question. The PFC uh, used a short community survey to ask what, focus, what the focus should be for the chief for the next two or three years. That was in the survey. The top response to that question uh, at 57% was to reduce crime. Um, Please discuss your ideas to reduce crime through the innovative use of resources and partnerships to enhance community health and safety.
1: So I'll speak to the group violence intervention initiative that we started in Pittsburgh in 2014. Uh, I led that initiative and stayed involved with it throughout my tenure until I left for the city of Pittsburgh. And actually, even after I left, I stayed uh, active in in its its deployment. Um, so the group violence initiative was was an objective to reduce violent crime in our neighborhoods, in all of our neighborhoods. Uh, it focused on group violence, and more importantly, it focused on precision policing. That that there are a very small group group of individuals within our communities that, that commit violent crime. So it was important to, to develop a strategy that focused on those small, that small sect of individuals in our communities that were committing violent crime, that we didn't have a blanket approach to, to policing a, a community, and specifically communities of color. Policing them, policing the community in a way that that was over policing, that was aggressive to the entire community when there were very few people within that community that were creating such harm. But to do that, it wasn't an enforcement-only policing strategy. It would take the efforts of the Department of, of Health and Human Services. It would take the efforts of the the community and, and their permission for us to be able to engage in a develop a strategy that way. So we engaged our faith-based leaders. We engaged our community groups, our, our, the people with positional power within our community that that would support this initiative. Uh, we, Engaged probation, parole, our federal partners, uh, we engaged judiciary, we engaged the Salvation Army to ensure that we were giving those individuals, that, that small group of, of individuals engaged in violent crime, an opportunity to leave that world. Like it wasn't an opportunity, the option, shouldn't have been, and wasn't to be go to jail or end up dead. The opportunity was to do something productive with your life, and we're going to help you get there. So, the social service aspect of group violence intervention was more impactful than the punitive aspects of group violence intervention. Like, arresting wasn't wasn't the 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 outcome of choice. That was the outcome of last resort. So, we partner with with all of these federal partners. The, the, again, human health services, the the. Uh, Salvation Army for job training, uh, the Port authority to just to show ensure that that uh, the these young individuals could get transportation back and forth to work. Things that we don't even think of the ability to get a license, the ability to clear up child support. All of all of these factors that play a role in in keeping people in the same lifestyle that that that, that produces violent crime. So with that, with that, this strategy had support from community collaboration that was engaged from the onset. Uh, this this project had support from, again, the judiciary that understood that our goal wasn't incarceration, our goal was rehabilitation. And, and this goal had the support of the police department collectively. That, that we would we would not over police any specific community. We would use data driven analytics. We would have a focused effort on on that small group of people. And and, and that's where all of our resources would go to combat violent crime. And when we did that, so from 2014, when we started the the initiative to 2019, we saw a 47% decrease in murders. 2019 ended with 37 homicides. It was the lowest murder total in 20 years. And, and, and that is because of that effort. We saw gun violence, aggravated assaults, which, which I refer to as attempted homicides because the only reason they're not homicides is because of bullet placement, luck, location hospital, any three of those factors. But that's what the efforts were. Those aggravated assaults, nonfatal shootings decreased tremendously over that same period of time because it has an effect. It has an effect when you use the entire system, the entire community, to, to engage in a meaningful policing strategy that doesn't cast a wide net broad band across a community based on the actions of a few members within it. And, and that group violence intervention strategy is, is transferable to, to Madison just as it was in Pittsburgh, but it's a commitment. It's a commitment from the police department. It's a commitment from the community. It's a, complete and a commitment from those involved in violent crime. Because I assure you, they, they also want a better way of life. They also want to be respected members of the community. Because like it or not, those, that small group of individuals are our children, part of our community. And, and back to my opening statement, it takes a community to raise a child. It will take all of us collectively to, to combat and reduce violent crime.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I think we are at an end. Thanks a lot, Larry. All right. Thank you.